Binance under attack from the CFTC, also arguably from the SEC after BUSD was shut down. We have Wells notices going to Coinbase and likely litigation there. We have reports of a banking regulator attack on the crypto industry with Operation Choke Point 2.0, some FUD around Signet and Signature Bank and what's happening there. Basically, it seems to be, stop being hyperbolic, all-out war against the crypto industry in the United States. Very difficult to keep up with the news cycle, very difficult to parse what is true and what is false, and very difficult to predict what is coming, which is why I always bring on at least three guests to share their opinions so that I don't have to uh, look like an idiot down the road when I'm completely wrong. So hopefully these guys will be completely right. We're going to discuss everything that's happening and what's likely to happen moving forward. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. You know, we're usually very uh, jovial and lighthearted around here. But it's hard to wake up in the morning super excited when you dig into the crypto news cycle and everything that's happening. And really hard, as I said in the intro, to discern what is conspiracy theory and when we have our tin hats on and what's blatantly right in front of us and happening. Seems to me at this point kind of hard to dispute the fact that there's something very serious going on here. Why? I don't know if it was something that was pre-planned or if this is the wake of FTX. When in doubt, I like to just blame Sam Bankman-Fried for everything. Like if my kids are bad in the morning, blame SBF. Uh, If the banking system is collapsing, probably SBF's fault. But maybe it goes a little deeper than that. And this is something that was coming and inevitable regardless of the egg on the face that the United States government got from allowing somewhat the FTX collapse and not regulating them in advance. As usual, I've got three amazing guests today because it's Thursday. I've got Dan Roberts from Decrypt, Alex Tapscott. Can we just call you Chain Yoda? Because you have the best uh, Twitter name ever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's, uh, it's lo- lovely. I don't ever want to use your real that. name. You're just, chain, you're just Chain Yoda to me. Chain Yoda, ladies it's and gentlemen. Good brand. Thank All you. Right. Yeah. So, so Dan, listen, I have to ask you first because you're running a crypto news uh, platform, Decrypt, and it's a complete shit show, right? Not your <laughs> platform, but this news cycle. So how do you, and I, this is like even a personal question because I have to attempt to do this on a daily basis. How do you even at this point vet the news that's coming in, decide what's worthy to print, decide what's true and what's false, How do you even approach this at this point? Well, it can't just be from Twitter. Uh, I mean, you know, for years it's been crypto Twitter leads the conversation. I think that's still the case. But when it comes to actual regulatory agencies and whatever actions they're bringing or not bringing, you know, we can't get our information from tweets. So it means talking to actual people in the know and sourcing stuff, talking to analysts, legal experts, and then looking at what they actually announce. I mean, let's remember when the Wells Notice news came out from Coinbase and and we had uh, a tip about that, the actual announcement took quite a while. It wasn't like when Coinbase announced we received a Wells Notice, the SEC announced it too. Uh, For a while there, it was only Coinbase saying we've received it. And then you have to explain to people what this means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, And I guess I also want to answer what you brought up in the intro too, which is in some ways, all this stuff was already happening. 
I mean, yes, it's shocking. Yes, every day is crazy and wild. You know, if we were planning this panel just last Friday, then it would have been about Coinbase receiving a Wells notice. Now it's Thursday, so it's about Binance and the CFTC, right? There's some new salvo shot across the bow every week. But we already knew that all the U.S. agencies hated Binance and were going, you know, to come at Binance and CZ hard. I mean, we've been covering for years the fact that CZ would say, we don't have a headquarters. We're not based anywhere. We're truly decentralized. He's been known to be the guy who was kind of evading regulation. But then he sort of went from regulation avoider to hero amid the Sam stuff, right? Because people said, wow, he exposed Sam. He exposed FTX. Now he's gone from villain to hero back to villain again. So, you know, maybe a good way to shape our conversation today is, is this going to kill Binance? When it comes to Coinbase, we also knew that being publicly traded, which the company has, I think, very savvily used in all of its marketing to say, we're trusted, you can trust us, we're not FTX, that never meant that it was fully protected, untouchable, not going to be the target of regulation. Uh, that said, I do think Brian Armstrong made a great point. Why were we allowed to go public then? I mean, we, we mentioned staking 57 times in our you know 8K form, or our S1, I should say, whatever, however many times it was. Well, guess what? Gary Gensler took office three days after Coinbase went public. So I guess I would just say none of this is actually shocking, but it certainly is unpleasant to watch. <laughs> Alex, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, my, my perspective on this is, is slightly different. So I think a lot of people are trying to um, use this be recent banking crisis that we've had as evidence of this broader operation choke point. And I think that there's some, some subtlety in that, right? So it's true that Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate, and Signature were the three primary banking partners of the crypto industry. Um, and it's also true that there are lots of people in the government who are not fans of Web3 and crypto. But that doesn't mean that the government orchestrated a banking crisis just to piss off the crypto industry. And, and I think that there's some people who actually think that. And I think that's probably overkill. I'm sure Dan, like I can see Dan kind of nodding. Um, so we've got to be able to use this. There is a lot coming at us hard and fast, but we need to be able to take a step back and try and like parse out, you know, what's what's really going on, how orchestrated is this really, is this part of some much broader attack? Um, and I think that, you know, we need to wait to see the evidence coming out. Um, I think anybody who's subject to an enforcement action by you know, the SEC or, or by the CFTC is innocent until proven guilty, um, you know, uh, which is the law. Um, but, you know, you can't dispute some of the evidence in some of these cases. I mean, if, if it's true that people in Binance really said what the CFTC is alleging, then, um, you know, they've got some pretty tough questions to answer. Uh, frankly, about how they were operating here in the U.S. Um, and elsewhere, um, you know, but, you know, overall, I, I look at this whole thing and I think like, OK, if, if you were to ask me six months ago that there was going to be a banking crisis and that was going to come in at the same time as an orchestrated, I think, you know, sort of regulatory crackdown or squeeze on the industry, what would the price action be? It wouldn't be that we'd be climbing this wall of worry and Bitcoin would be close to $30,000. So I think that's kind of interesting just to like look at the price action as evidence of how the market is digesting this whole thing. Um, you know, I think that right now, at least uh, negative news is having uh, 
less of an impact every single time it comes out than it has previously. And maybe it's like a boxer who's punched drunk up against the ropes, just getting walloped over the head. It might still be doing a lot of damage, but he doesn't really notice it. Um, but at least right now, uh, the price is the price he's is already unconscious. So it's yeah, fine. He's <laughs> Super bloody. He's okay. But, um, it's interesting to see how the, the industry is, seems to be kind of shrug- or like how the price action seems to be shrugging off a lot of this stuff while while people in the industry like run around with, with their hair on fire, worried about some massive government crackdown. I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah, I mean, but I just want to jump in really quickly. I agree with you 100 percent that this that a manufactured banking crisis has nothing to do with uh, uh, crypto. But I will say that Elizabeth Warren dunking on Silvergate because of its connection to crypto and trying mm-hmm. to politicize the crypto side of Silvergate's collapse helped cause the run on Silicon Valley Bank. And I would say that it is a bit suspect that Signature Bank was closed on a Sunday. <laughs> uh, so maybe they used the banking crisis as an excuse to go ahead and just uh, clean out this little slight inconvenience called crypto. I mean, the FDIC, one of the chairmen yesterday, I believe, was in Congress and completely contradicted himself as to what was happening with the signature bank uh, crypto with Signet, which is basically the 24-7 settlement layer. At one point, he said it was sold. And then the other point said, no, it's not sold. And we do know for a fact that with signature bank, all non-crypto accounts have been transferred. And anyone with a crypto-based account was told, get your money to another bank or we're going to send you a check in a week. Yeah, I definitely so, think there's truth to that, which is the, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, that's exactly, added, that's exactly added, right. Oh, we've got this banking crisis. We might as well clean house while we're at it, um, you know, if we've got some alternative agenda. Yeah, so I think there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> Yoda, what are your thoughts? Call him Yoda. Yeah, so, you know, uh, so I have had the, the dubious pleasure of watching the entire global financial crisis unfold. I was at Goldman and I've watched Lehman go down. Uh, and then all of the regulatory overreaction, you know, for the last 10 years after the, for the 10 years after that, they created Basel 3 and 4, they created Dodd-Frank, and none of that has worked, right? So when, uh, and crypto is sort of this, you know, high beta asset class that was just the first to take a hit of, you know, uh, rather thoughtless monetary policy, right? So we had the Fed print $7 trillion or something like that. And then we had global central banks essentially printing a lot of money to artificially, artificially manufacture growth. Now that was, we, we were always going to have to pay the bills for it. And crypto, unfortunately, was the first asset class to take a hit, right? So we had massive crypto uh, banking crashes, if you will, with FTX and, you know, uh, and, and some of them involved fraud, right? So, so, uh, so we saw a whole a Celsius go down, we saw BlockFi go down, we saw Voyager go down, we saw everything starting with Luna, right? So there were massive failures and there were certain incidents incidents of fraud, unfortunately, that's true. But we're seeing the same thing in banks now, right? So now the there is a tax fraud case in France where, uh, you know, all of the French, major French banks are being in, uh, audited and investigated by tax authorities. Now, you know, we, we are seeing reports come out from Hindenburg about Stripe manufacturing artificial growth. Uh, sorry, not Stripe, Square, right? Jack Dorsey Square. My apologies to folks at Stripe. Uh, so, so we're seeing a lot of, you know, people, we have Revolutes being, uh, Revolutes auditors and boards saying, hey, we don't understand these numbers. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on across, you know, uh, when the tide goes out, then, you know, it, it's then you find out who's been swimming naked. And we're seeing that across the fiat ecosystem. And we're seeing that across crypto. Crypto was the first one to take that hit, right? So that, that has led to a crazy overreaction. 
Uh, and, and some of that is natural, right? So what happened with FTX is it made a lot, because FTX was spending so much money and time buying legitimacy, they made a lot of people look bad. It made a lot of you know politicians look bad. It made a lot of regulators look bad. The guy was meeting the chairs of you know both of the major agencies in the U.S. and having lunch with them. So now, if they don't act at this time, they're going to look awful. So they have to react. Uh, you know, but this is a pendulum, right? So we we had a relatively uh, relaxed, uh, you know, somewhat deregulated environment for the last five or six years. You know, yeah. there was there were ICOs and there was a reaction to ICOs. There are like 40,000 coins that no one can explain. Uh, on CoinGecko. Now, I don't think we need all of those, right? So, so but at the same time, you know, there is going to be some rulemaking, there's going to be some, uh, you know, discipline in this industry as well, and it's going to grow up because there's a lot of retail money involved. Now, at the same time, uh, you know, I think uh, certain assertions that current rules are appropriate for this new asset class and for the technology that's being built, they're completely, completely in inaccurate. And, you know, they're I mean, it's like, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I think uh, we need some rulemaking for sure. We need some legislation. There is stablecoin legislation in front of the Congress. There is a whole bunch of, you know, uh, good proposals coming out of policy folks in the crypto industry. I think it's time to sort of, you know, have a grown up conversations on both sides of this divide, as opposed to, you know, people trying to enforce existing rules that do not apply to this asset class or, you know, people saying, oh, no, we don't need any rules because, you know, we clearly do. And and you guys, probably ahead, saw, you guys probably saw what Gary said yesterday, which I'm not saying, you know, I'm the first to have predicted this, but on this show, you know, a few months ago, I was saying Gensler would say, well, what do you mean that there's a lack of clarity? There's clarity. You just don't like it. We have existing rules and people say, well, you know, they're using this test from the 1940s. Fine. But they believe it still applies. I mean, that's that's what I said when we talked about Gensler earlier. It's like, you know, everyone says, well, it's unclear. It's unclear. We need new rules. He's saying, no, we have rules. You just don't like them. So um, to address, you know, Tapscott's point about the conspiracy theory, I do think a lot of people in crypto, these DGENs think that, you know, they, they kind of spin off into these conspiracies and they're mostly um, going overboard. However, I've come around to the idea that, that Gary does basically uh, hate every single thing in crypto and thinks everything other than Bitcoin is a token, even though for some reason he's unwilling to say it. I mean, when he first, um, you know, entered that role as SEC chair, uh, a lot of people thought that he'd be a friend of crypto just because he had once taught one class on blockchain at MIT. We were so excited. We were yeah. So excited. And it's like, I know. Look, he, he does not like any of what he sees. And so the people who were hitting the panic button for eight months already regarding everything he said, and I was saying, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Now I'm sort of, I've come around to like, yeah, he is, you know, it's pretty bad under the Gary regime. Now, the problem people make is lumping in SEC and Gensler with every other kind of agency and with the banking industry. We're seeing separate things play out right now. But there's sort of Gary and there's everything else. But the vitriol from him is not yeah. Uh, just one comment there, right? So I was uh, watching the testimony, Chair Gensler's testimony last night. I think there were a lot of questions about overreach, systemic, systematic overreach across different things. So you know, there was this whole discussion about climate change, uh, related rules, rulemaking, where essentially a whole bunch of companies are being asked to report consistently on stuff that pretty much no one in the industry, you know, or in the investor community cares about. But that creates an unnecessary burden. And, and we're going to see this type of overreach. And there is, you know, existing, uh, like, there was a, this West Virginia versus the EPA case where this the current administration lost uh, 
on the, the Supreme Court said, you know, this is government overreach and under the major questions doctrine, the, the, the regulator should not be, you know, the EPA should not be, the Environment Protection Agency should not be acting in this case unless authorized by the Congress explicitly. So we're going to see some of that, I think, you know, overreach and then we will see the courts correct that and legislation correct that. But in the meantime, we have to kind of deal with this. Yeah, it's like the most important point is to remind people that we do every day is just because a regulator says it doesn't make it true. It still has to pass the courts. And we've seen definitely some at least seemingly sensible judges pushing back against the SEC in the Voyager case, Grayscale case, potentially the Ripple case, the Ripple certainly case. not in the library case. <laughs> um, but uh, but elsewhere, I want to you made a great point earlier about banks and obviously society. I don't know how to pronounce French words, you know, so uh, general. Uh, uh, being uh, obviously being one of the major French banks, uh, maybe Alex here in Canada, you can pronounce those for us. Um, but, uh, you know, the sort of action for, for tax evasion and fraud there. I mean, listen, this is a violation tracker for JP Morgan, who has paid $36,129,286,132 in penalties since 2000. Right. We obviously had Wells Fargo. Was it in January? Just paid a three point seven billion dollar fine. Like it's not new that we're seeing this in the banking system. I just want to remind you. Uh, and so it's not. But that also goes back to the maybe this isn't just about crypto. Right. I mean, regulators it's are going to regulate. Yeah. Yeah. I would mind uh, just because ahead, Alex. What, what Ajit said uh, earlier is, I think, quite sensible, which is that, you know, uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard by the things that have happened in the last nine or 12 months, which I think have been driven in part by this massive rise in interest rates that we've seen. And the tide has come out. And when that happens, as he pointed out, there are plenty of good companies that are short cash or maybe can't work out. And then you also reveal a lot of frauds. And that's something that we're now seeing uh, across several different um, parts of the financial sector and, and also in crypto. But to me, the, the key point that um, we haven't quite addressed yet is that there's a difference between wrongdoing by a company operating in an industry and the underlying industry itself or, or the underlying asset itself, right? I mean, the South Sea uh, company went bankrupt. It turned out to be a massive bubble and it led to a law being created that banned the creation of joint stock corporations for a hundred years. Um, and people at the time were basically saying the problem here is not that some um, Huckster was duping people into investing money into a fraud. The problem was the joint stock corporation itself. Of course, like in retrospect, that was a bad point of view because the joint stock corporation is an amazing vehicle for organizing capital and organizing capability. And it's the way in which all wealth and assets are organized today. Right. Um, you know, and if you look at other crises like Enron, um, you know, we didn't, we're not blaming the natural gas market or power production for the failures of one single company. And even in the banking crisis of 2007, 2008, to be sure, there was definitely some assets there that were inherently worthless and shouldn't have been created and propagated and sold to investors. You know, um, talking about like mortgage bonds made up of CDOs that were rubber stamped by, you know, the regular by the uh, by the rating agencies, when in fact, their underlying assets were not of a high quality. But generally speaking, like we don't look look at that crisis and say, you know, what the problem is like bank banking as an industry, we say the problem is the wrongdoing of, um, you know, institutions and the individuals who run them. And I think the same is true here. So um, right now, there's a lot of noise and anger uh, directed at crypto. And it's very difficult to separate for I think for a lot of people in government, apparently, to separate the difference between 
what is an underlying asset class and technology? What does it do? What kind of capability can it create in the economy? How could it generate new innovation, new jobs, and so forth? And the actions of a handful of uh, bad apples. And I think until the temperature lowers a little bit and we're able to have that conversation, then uh, we're going to end up with some uh, un unexpected, or not unexpected, but unfortunate and, and negative uh, consequences. Um, and I think that's the thing that we need to guard against. But as an industry, we need to have the confidence to say not every not every allegation of fraud is FUD, because as we've seen, there are plenty of examples of bad behavior yeah. in this industry, right? Like, um, so we have to like have some have some confidence and conviction in the in what we're doing here, um, rather than just saying like, oh, you know, every single thing a regulator says or does has to be like untrue. It, they may be um, they may not share the same opinions as we do. Um, and they and they may share the same opinions. Not everyone's the same. Like there are uh, people in the SEC, like Hester Pierce, who are quite um, forward thinking about this subject. But that doesn't mean that there that doesn't like therefore mean that every single thing is just fud. Like we need to like as an industry go up to the point where you can say, yeah, you know, wrongdoers should be punished. But as a whole, the direction here is an over overreach, and it's going to harm innovation. It's going to harm the sector, and we need to fight against that. Those are two separate things. Um, and I think that's being lost in the mix right now during this and, conversation. And just real quick. Well, our conversation, I mean, in the general conversation. Yeah. Well, and just real quick, I mean, I, I always like to say regulation does not equal necessarily shutting down. In other words, everyone in crypto fears the very word regulation. It's this big boogeyman. And it's like, well, regulation just means trying to do their jobs if you believe that they see their jobs as protecting regular folks from losing their shirts, right? So putting safeguards and rails in place for regular retail investors. It doesn't mean, you know, shut it all down, which we know in the case of Bitcoin and Ethereum, they can't do anyway. But, you know, Biden's executive order, all this stuff we've seen, this kind of grandstanding, they're not saying shut down crypto. They're saying we need to regulate it. Now, that said, Elizabeth Warren hated crypto long before FTX collapsed. I mean, Gary Gensler thought she everything did. except Bitcoin was a security long before FTX collapsed. Yeah. But what Sam did was exacerbated it. I mean, I, I was saying that the FTX meltdown was, I think, the biggest, the most mainstream crypto news story ever. I mean, right? Even bigger than Silk Road, probably. And the problem with that was the prominence of it led people to think, well, you know, especially politicians, oh, shit, I need to make clear to people that. I'm tough on on crypto, on this crypto stuff, because it's crazy and it's the Wild West. So Sam did no one any favors. But again, I, I don't think the regulatory environment was so friendly before Sam and FTX um, went up in flames. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would add just one other thing, which is um, Ajit is, is good at talking in parables and metaphors. So I will I will add another one, which is that you know there's a parable of like the scorpion and the tortoise, and it's like the scorpion needs to cross the river. And he asked the tortoise for mm. why. The tortoise says, well, I'm just going to sting you. You're just going to sting me. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? Like, if I sting you, then I'm going to sink and drown too. And so he says, yeah, fair enough. And then they get on. He gets on the tortoise and halfway through, he stings him. And as they're both sinking and, and they're both about to die, the tortoise says, why do you do that? And he says, it's, it's in my nature. Um, you know, it's like, I, I think that part of that is in the absence of uh, new legislation, um, regulators are going to pursue their mandate forcefully um and and their interpretation of it right so and that's why we get this very humorous situation where according to the securities regulator every token is a security and according to the commodities regulator every token is a commodity right <laughs> it's like those things can't be both both be true i don't think at the same time i'm not a lawyer but um it does make sense doesn't it that 
the commodities regulators views interprets the world in one way and the securities regulator interprets in the other and will pursue their their mandate as best they can right but their mandate is to protect consumers right we, we we've discussed that dan made the very eloquent point that that is exactly what they're supposed to be doing but they didn't this is all retroactive after the consumers got completely washed out mm -hmm. uh, that to me is the problem yeah, okay? yeah. but scott with Scott, to be fair, you know, the SEC did send Doquan a, a letter at the Misari mainnet elevator and, and everyone was up in arms, right? At that time, every all of us, uh, the entire industry was trying to defend Doquan and then the damn thing blew up and now everyone is trying to distance themselves from Doquan. So it's hard, you know, being a regulator is like being a parent. You can't really do much when things are on the way up, right? So your kids are getting good grades. Now they might be, you know, doing funny things on the side, but you don't, you can't really say anything. So, so I think uh, being a regulator is hard and unfortunately the thing is regulators mandate is not to make the rules right they have some discretion in enforcing the rules uh which you know which rules and in which scenarios and so on uh, you know they have a limited budget and so on and so forth so but uh, you know so we do need new rules right we clearly this asset class does not fit the existing frameworks that's that's pretty clear and the industry also yeah. so far hasn't really tried very hard to you know sort of to push for new legislation i think that's something we have to do now so this is a good thing and, and i think one thing people are not uh, you know paying attention to is that regulation can be a very very good thing i think depending if we make good rules right if you look at section 230 uh, for the web 2 platforms like social media uh, you know it, the, there is a whole set of rules which protect facebook from the content that facebook users post on facebook right so they have no liability for stupid things people say now Crypto needs rulemaking of that sort, right? From the tech front, where essentially, if you build a build good technology and somebody uses it for bad purposes, you're not in trouble for that. So, so I think uh, there is existing internet regulation that's quite applicable to the technology that we are building. But at the same time, when it, other people's money is involved, right? So, so there needs to be some level of consumer protection and asset protection. But obviously, the current frameworks do not apply. This tech. You can't force the you know the the the, the 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 twelve federal agencies and their frameworks and the fifty hundred plus state agencies and they don't agree on most things. So so right now you know the U.S. regulatory architecture is not built for financial innovation and it's not working for asset protection. Dodd Frank is clearly not a success. You know Basel three and four haven't protected the banks. So we clearly need a more cleaner regulatory architecture and technology stack. And that's kind of what we're building, right? So there is an opportunity to kind of look at things from the first principles and say, what do we need? And that's what the industry needs to be pushing for instead of saying, no, we don't need any rules. Well, we do need some rules, but we need better rules than the ones we have today. I'd like to add on that point um, because the, the the subject of Section 230 is, is interesting. And also some of the other laws that were created in, in uh, the 1990s to set the conditions for the internet to succeed, like the Telecommunications Act. Um, these are things that, where the United States was a leader in creating the conditions for the, this industry to succeed. And I think that that's something that we can all agree is lacking here in the United States, um, rather, you know, depending on your interpretation of regulations and so forth, um, there's some nuance. But um, what's obvious is that there is no consensus in government that this is a good thing um, or any uh, sort of drive uh, to put in place laws that will create a durable and lasting framework for Web3 to succeed. And that's a, that's a very interesting dynamic uh, because the U.S. has long been a leader in tech, technology and financial services, which are the two industries that this technology promises to disrupt the most. And at the time in the 1990s, the U.S. 
you know, had most of the internet connections, most of the PCs, most of um, the venture capital industry and so forth. And so it became a leader in web one and, and, and web two. Uh, this time is very different. Like technology tools are far more distributed. Uh, Dan just said in our, in our private chat, you know, uh, they weren't a leader in, in mobile payments. That's true. Today, uh, the mobile revolution is happening everywhere um, all at once, right? It's not just happening in, in the US and now we're, they're a laggard in some respects. So there's no guarantee here that, um, you know, the US will succeed in spite of its lack of clarity in the laws. If anything, that could be its death knell. And already we're seeing um, other countries stepping up and opening up. Hong Kong recently has reversed some of its laws around banking crypto companies. More dramatic is what's happening in the GCC, specifically in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi. You know, Abu Dhabi launched a $2 billion Web3 fund to support entrepreneurs. Um, there's nothing like that at all in the U.S. Now, the U.S. doesn't need that. We don't need the government to, to bankroll subsidized companies. Like, that's what the venture capital industry is for. Um, you know, that's something that countries that don't already have an established culture of entrepreneurship or deep VC industry or talent needs to do in order to attract those things. Um, but that's what other countries are doing, right? So this is... Um, uh, really, it's not, and this isn't just a matter of regulatory arbitrage, which is something some people say, like, oh, we'll go to the place where it's the most lax. We're seeing proactive, long, long-term thinking from governments to try to drive adoption and innovation, and uh, you know, company formation and capital formation in their countries. And that's something that um, people should pay attention to. So, if in fact there is this massive government crackdown, it's just a self-defeating exercise. Um, in, in so many ways, like we live in a digital world. Um, all of these entities exist online, uh, you know, like geography matters less than it ever has before. So rather than trying to fight against the change, think of ways to create the framework for it to grow in the right kind of way so that it benefits the U.S., doesn't harm them. Uh, yeah, ahead, one thing I would add to that is, you know, we, we tend to overly anchor on the U.S. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and there is a reason for it, right? Because U.S. dollars, I mean, crypto has driven a lot of dollarization. It's strategically important for U.S. national security and the adoption of dollar instruments around the world, right? So it's, there's all kinds of benefits to the U.S. But obviously, there is quite a bit of exposure for the industry as well in the United States because of the, you know, the stable coins and so on. Now, but we are seeing, you know... Uh, some very negative attitudes in other parts of the world too. Like in India, it's not particularly crypto friendly. Uh, there are, you know, Canada has gotten stricter and stricter over a period over the years. So, so I think there is kind of global coordination we're starting to see. And you know, even the policymakers and regulators recognize that there is need for, you know, this is fundamentally you know, internet of money. So, uh, internet of value. So there is probably a need for harmonization and coordination. Now, Europe, Europe has driven. You know, for once, Europe has kind of driven sensible rulemaking relative to what's going on in India and the U.S., right? So uh, so I think there is, uh, we're starting to see conversations between U.S. regulators and, you know, uh, European regulators around what's a sensible way to, you know, structure uh, rulemaking around this. Uh, the, you know, most most recently we had, uh, Euro, uh, you know, U.S. legislators visit France and and Belgium to, uh, to to sort of discuss, you know, what the European approach is. So I think there is, you know, there is an overreaction right now, but I don't see that lasting, right? I think a lot of people know the competitive value 
or, or the the competitive advantage that this creates for uh, for this technology can create for their economy and and it's going to happen anyway right so when we talk about the market prices i don't think of prices as a validation of anything in crypto you know we've seen some very strange things go up and down uh, but at the same time i think what's clear from the market's response is that crypto isn't going away you can't put this genie back in the box so you know the market is pretty clear even institutional buyers are pretty clear that you know crypto is here to stay uh, and and in, irrespective of this overreaction uh, so people are quite comfortable I'm, I'm quite comfortable you know in my own portfolio and everything that crypto is here to stay but i i think you know what what the crypto industry needs to do is it needs to mirror the kind of global coordination we are seeing on policy and then work across you know coordinate uh, a set, on a set of standards around the world and not just focus entirely on the united states because people you know uh, regulators and policymakers are talking to each other all the time and so we I'm need glad to we're bring best the- practices I'm glad we're talking about the global scene because just quickly, um, not only do we focus too much on the U.S., but for the longest time, the fear was the strict regulatory environment is going to push projects out of the U.S. It seems to me that has already happened. I mean, more and more, we're interviewing some DeFi tool or platform at a conference, and they say, well, we operate everywhere but the U.S. because companies just say, well, well, that's it. It's too hard to navigate. Um, I mean, again, look at the fact that the only publicly traded U.S. exchange still you know gets their ass handed to them uh, on staking something they've been doing for a while so I, I don't see how you win and uh i wrote a column about this recently after going to nft paris it, it seemed to me ajit you mentioned france it seems to me that places like france and other parts of europe are just being much more welcoming yes they have their own rules like someone replied to me and said what are you talking about france just said it's going to tighten the uh, registration requirement fine but they're still allowing companies to register and not making it take years like the SEC does, they say, "Oh, we have an open door. Where's the open door? How do we reach you?" So um, we also, you know, yeah, yeah. The the fear is the U.S. is going to lose in this area of technology to other countries, and I think that's that should be a legitimate carrot to motivate U.S. regulators, but it, it doesn't seem like it is. They've lost. It's a real concern. Uh, so uh, it's over. They've lost. I'm sorry. Right. This this technology moves at the speed of light, and we're going in one direction. And everybody else is going in another direction. There's not a sensible new crypto platform company that's saying, you know what we need to do? Go start in the United States. It's just not happening. It's like shame, anyone who is it? here, anyone who is here is moving or focusing offshore, and anyone who's starting anything new, which you would think would be the next five to ten years of development, right, mm. is starting somewhere else. It's over here. I'm not saying I, that we I can't have know. crypto, I, I, but I'm saying that it's that, that that we will not be leading in this space ever. Uh, so, so uh, Scott, I don't necessarily agree with that. All right, I mean, I as an angel investor, I see some of the most bleeding edge technology and projects still coming out of the U.S. Right? Uh, I'm not saying of, that the teams aren't project. in the U.S. I'm not saying the teams right, innovators right. are not in the U.S. I'm saying that they won't be operating. In the United States, U.S. citizens That's will true. be blocked. It, it's from not using sustainable it. for them to live and yeah, operate in the U.S. For sure. the US I mean, they're still holding on. I don't know for how long. That's clear. No. The U.S. will not be the leader That's in this. Clear. Exactly. That's that's all I'm saying. So listen, yeah, obviously, Binance is under attack. Why Bitcoin is rising. I, I want to talk about both of those things now, since it is theoretically the title. Although I think we've talked around that, we have addressed that. Oh, very indirectly. But first of all, to Ajit's point, you said something which I loved. You said price action doesn't really de- to, doesn't alter your view of uh, anything fundamentally happening in the space. I would love to say that Bitcoin is sitting at $28,500 today because people saw the banking system collapse and they're rushing it. No. Right. We've seen this in every single cycle 
at this point in the four-year cycle, even where there's a move to Bitcoin and all the you know liquidity goes there, and then eventually it, the, uh, Bitcoin stabilizes and it exits and it trickles down to all coins, all of those things. Even Michael Saylor on my Twitter space has recently said, this is a bunch of crypto people rushing into Bitcoin. It's not a bunch of new people rushing into Bitcoin, which I thought yeah. was a very shocking yeah. revelation for someone like him to say. So I just want to outright say, I'm very excited that Bitcoin is rising, but I don't think it's because of it. We also know that like literally CZ could just be like having Binance buy enough Bitcoin to push the price up to change the narrative. I'm not saying that's happening, but this market is small enough that something like that could happen, right? Uh, so I think that um, in general, I, I agree with Ajit, which is that, you know, we should be if you're if you're interested in this industry, then you should be looking at what kinds of new applications and technologies people are building. The price will kind of follow from there. Like it's one one fall one should follow the other, not the other way around. Um, but there are some interesting dynamics in this industry where the value of the assets actually does matter. Um, you know, if uh, if the price of crypto goes up, then that means that the treasuries of DAOs and other applications increases because still to this day that's where they keep a lot of their assets, and that gives them the ability to to hire more people and to spend more money in, in developing applications. The same is true in, tr in traditional, you know, capital markets. Like it, the, the amount of that venture capital raise and the valuations of tech startups in and of itself doesn't lead to new, you know, is not is not the innovation, but it actually can help to to create some of the conditions. So I think that that is important to understand. Um, and also, I'm not sure Michael Saylor probably knows more about this subject than I do, um, considering that's his business. But, you know, we have we run a, a Bitcoin ETF here in Canada. It's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so we track what's going on in the Bitcoin world. And, and there have been some interesting data points that have come out recently. The number of new addresses has hit an all time high and has continued to move higher. But more, more importantly, is the number of addresses with a balance of at least one hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, has also increased. So yeah, that to me that suggests. Oh, and 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 whereas the the number of addresses in other categories, like in the sort of like larger dollar value, have not increased that much. So what that tells me is that you've got some net new um, people coming into the space, buying uh, a a small to medium sized amount. You know, a few hundred dollars, maybe a few thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. And I think that's that's kind of interesting. Another thing that we've been uh, watching is that the correlations between Bitcoin and other asset classes has started to um, diverge slightly. Um, you know, I think the story last year was the whole milkshake theory about the dollar kind of sucking all liquidity out of the system and all risk assets kind of going to one in terms of correlations. The Nasdaq and Bitcoin almost like Bitcoin is trading like a fang stock. It wasn't trading like some uncorrelated store of value hedge asset. Um, but now we're starting to see that uh, decoupling. And I think that's a trend that you want to follow quite closely. Um, and then the final thing, which I think is just an interesting thing in general, which is that the uh, percentage of trading vo volume that is happening on not on centralized exchanges is happening on decentralized exchanges is nearing an all time high, close to 20 percent. Um, and so that tells me that there's also people who are moving assets off of um, centralized exchanges into decentralized exchanges, which I think long term is a positive thing because it's been the, the problem recently has been that these things that were supposed to be on ramps and infrastructure have become the industry itself and they become these too big to fail institutions. So anything we can do to lower their relative importance, I think, is kind of interesting as well. And then the final thing, and I think that's more to um, I can't remember who brought up the four year cycle. Maybe that was you, Scott. But basically, like Bitcoin right now is. Uh, over time, its share of overall market cap has been declining, right, over time with peaks and valleys. But right now, it's at one of those points where it's actually quite high. 
So right now it's close to 47%. Um, and we saw in the lead up to the bull market of two, late 2020, early 21, that the correlate, or excuse me, that the, the uh, share of market cap increased quite significantly in that period. Now at the time it was going from like 60 to 75 <laughs> at, at its very, very peak, right before the bull market began, Bitcoin was a staggering percentage of the overall market. So it's, it's still much less now than it was then. But this is the kind of thing where we do see um, a lead up occurring. So like taken together, so I, I, you know, I, I don't look at just the price and I don't think that's the most important driver, but taken together, you consider all these quantitative measures, the price action, and what we're seeing in terms of the development of some of the technology like decentralized exchanges. And I actually do think um, we're in a pretty good position, right? And, and also given the fact that there's all of this negative headline risk, and yet the diminishing returns of that headline risk on the value of assets tells me that we're, running out of, we're maybe running out of sellers who give a shit about this thing. Yeah, I mean, those are the like classic bottom <laughs> signal is when like bad news is not bad news anymore, yeah. right? It's just like there's no one left to sell. I agree with that 100%. I just want to make it clear. I was saying I just don't buy the narrative that we're seeing like this mainstream move into the asset class because of what's happening in global events. I 100% agree with you that things are always trending up in the right direction for crypto as an asset class, Alex. Oh, but Dan, and, and, just, and just to clarify, like since January, there have been 4 million new Bitcoin addresses with a balance of at least $100 created. So that's that's meaningful, but it's not yeah. millions of people all around the right. world. Right? Exactly. Well, and when we talk about how correlated you know Bitcoin remains to mainstream markets, a big data point I thought was, I guess it was already two weeks ago, but on the Sunday that... Um, Treasury and the FDIC and the Fed came out and announced we're going to backstop all depositors, uh, you saw crypto bounce back. And so the next day, everyone said, see, crypto's up because people realize that the banks suck and you can't trust the banks. Not quite. I know, you know, it's not, that's what they want. <laughs> no, 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 no. If you look but, at the um, Binance volumes, right, it looks, I mean, the Binance volumes are, are quite low. I mean, we're looking at a probably at, I think, a monthly or a two-month low on Binance Bitcoin trading volumes after they turned the fees on. Uh, so so I, I still buy Scott's thesis that it's mostly crypto people buying Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. But you know, yeah. and, and by the way, the ultimate irony was, you know, crypto going up when the government stepped in to backstop a banking crisis. Right. I mean, what are we doing here? Because the whole point was supposed to be that crypto. Well, behaves they did save USDC, right, for all it's worth. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Whether intentionally or unintentionally, but I guess but I do want to circle back to Binance, though, and, and Dan, sort of to the initial question of this conversation, which is yeah. I obviously asked you how difficult it is to parse the news on Binance, but obviously you've dug pretty deep in the weeds on this, yeah. I would imagine. So well, we, listen, we talked there's, about, there's you some, know, what does yeah, the CFTC have, right? And when you actually dive deep and read into the complaint here, uh, they have quite a lot. Um, you know, and it, it's clear that uh, they took their time and, and waited to drop this until they had done a lot of kind of investigating. There's internal chats, right? There's stuff that that makes CZ himself look pretty bad. I mean, the longtime meme of four different traders and they're all CZ, but wearing different hats. I mean, it looks like that meme was actually what was happening in some cases. So it, it isn't great. You know, it's hard to think. And it, it is funny because, you know, Binance would say, well, we're not a U.S. company. We're not a U.S. company. I think the biggest takeaway from this for me is doesn't matter what you say. If in practice, 16 percent of your customers or maybe it was 16 percent of volume is happening in the U.S., then the U.S. agency can come after you and say, we don't like what you're doing here. Not and great. if you believe that by and if you believe and this is alleged, but I'm saying if you believe that Binance US is not a separate entity and is effectively an arm of the uh, of the original, then I, I can see how that Just becomes like a concern. US. 
you know? Right, but, I guess, it's yeah. but I guess the next logical question then becomes, and I don't think it matters so much in the eyes of the regulator or, or of the courts, but CZ himself has said countless times that when they started, there was no real regulation in place. They basically... I usually, he said, you know, it was like the automobile when they started with cars, there was no laws because you didn't need them. And then the Reyes cars got faster and bigger and less safe. You needed to. So they openly admitted that they did a lot of things that were likely not going to be compliant, waiting for regulation. So the question then becomes, is all of this stuff that happened in the past and perhaps finance started a bit shady and has evolved into really becoming regulatory and client a lot, compliant. A lot of people would say the same for Tether, by the way, right? The Tether yep. originally was shady yeah. and eventually with time they became compliant, got fully backed. Or is this an ongoing concern? I mean, they came out and said yesterday, I think uh, the CFTC, one of them said this is ongoing fraud, which is why we jumped in now. But that was to address the concerns that people were saying this is all stuff that happened in the past. Well, I guess the question is, is Binance a bad actor now or was Binance potentially just kind of uh, doing things that were seemingly normal in crypto four years ago? Or more importantly, for the future of this company, let's remember it's a, a giant business. Um, can Binance say, OK, sorry about the past. Tell us what we need to do to continue as a going concern. Or is it like, no, 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 now you're done. Um, and Ajit mentioned, you know, the ICO era. I would say the ICO era hasn't ended in the sense that the SEC every week still announces some action against some company that did a token four years ago, right? So I guess the answer would be, you know, Binance can't really get away with saying all that was in the past and we're sorry, tell us what kind of fine we need to pay. Um, I, I, it doesn't seem to me it was mostly in the past since the CFTC is concerned with allowing the derivatives trading in the US, which it still is or was doing. So that part of it is ongoing at the very least. Yeah, it's interesting because Binance US does not offer derivatives, right? Mm, so that, that, yeah, yeah that, that's the part that I found uh, a, bit, uh, a bit strange. But I mean, Alex, where do you stand on this? I know you, it's somewhat irrelevant on the long-term uh, trajectory, I think. But I mean, what are your thoughts on everything you've read here? Uh, no comment. I'm going to like take the position that, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty, but like all the facts will reveal themselves in the goodness of time on this one. Everyone is innocent proven until proven guilty, except for SPF. But uh, Ajit, I would love your... Uh, uh, yeah, so... Ajit, I would love uh, your look, Binance. <laughs> I mean, Binance, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take the fifth, just like Alex. Binance is an ex-employer. I were consulted with Binance in the UK, so I cannot comment. I'm trying to find uh, a tweet that I know John Deaton, the uh, the lawyer, had uh, referenced the library case recently and saying, you know, this is, oh, I found it, one second. I'm just going to pull this up because it's too good uh, to, to, to what we're kind of talking about here. This was the SEC and, and Jeremy Kaufman from library, who's the CEO, said, Mr. Kaufman, he said, you're a liar, Peter, the court. Wait, wait, you're lying right now. Stop. Okay, we'll get to the main, he said, this is what Jeremy Kaufman said to the regulator. Because you're, Dan, you asked the question, like, what are they going to do moving forward to become compliant? This is what I said. I will do anything. They can say it right now. I'll destroy the company. I'll give them every dollar in the bank account. I will fire everyone. I will shut down everything, and I will give you the pre-mine. Is it not a security now, Peter? Right? I don't know if you guys read this that was from that court case. And he says, these are simple questions. If the rule of law is real, that these are questions that are answerable, why can't anyone tell me if that's legal? If the rule of law is clear and fair notice isn't a defense, because the average person, the average person can understand the law. And these are very clear questions that ought to have yes and no answers that the regulators ought to be able to answer. 
basically the point being, he said, I will literally do anything you want to be compliant, to clear this out, to make this right. And they say, yeah, we don't care. Well, and also they don't, want the to go through, they don't want to have to go through the work of evaluating every single token. I mean, as someone on this, on this uh, show said earlier, what are there like 10,000 shit coins now that really shouldn't exist, have no excuse for existing? It used to be like, you'd say, here's our special business purpose and here's what our chain does. And so, you know, what they don't want to say is, we think every single thing is a security, uh, but that's clear that that's what they believe and they don't want to have to go through the work of evaluating each one on its merits. They just basically think libraries are security, this one's a security, there's nothing you can do, but they don't want to say there's nothing you can do outright. That's what it seems like to me. I mean, there was the, the moment when uh, some recent complaint that actually was about something else. I think it was the insider trading complaint against Coinbase that said, by the way, we think these specific nine tokens are securities and the, you I and Coinbase that. list them. And Coinbase said, well, actually only seven, you know, two of them we suspended trading of, whatever. And I don't know where that stands. Interestingly, Paul Grewal basically said they couldn't <clears> be securities because Coinbase, as a rule, doesn't list securities. And I thought that was kind of cute because just because you say it doesn't mean it's going to convince them. But as I understand it, Coinbase didn't pull them. Binance pulled them to do a little bit of grandstanding and say, oh, see, we're compliant. But, um, you know, it, it just seems to me that there's no way they're going to go through and parse every single individual token on the market. But at the same time, Gary doesn't want to say what he clearly believes, which is other than Bitcoin, everything's a security. And let's also remember a watershed moment back in 2018 was when that former SEC official, Bill Hinman, said, no, no, we also think that ETH is OK. But it's clear that Gary doesn't agree with that. Yeah, I mean, right now you have the CFTC literally listing in this Binance complaint Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and a couple stable coins. I find that curious. I don't see how stable coins are commodities. I'll, I'll push back on that one. Obviously, as sort of a slight to the SEC, which I guess leads to the obvious question, is some of this, it's not at the core, but are they utilizing this opportunity to jockey for a regulatory position here? CFTC yeah. wants it. SEC wants it. Let's put it in there. I mean, we literally live in a world right now where if you read court documents, ETH is both a security and a commodity. Yeah. yeah. That, the answer is yes. They're both trying to, like, stake a claim. Yeah. It's pretty and clear. that's been the case for years, by the way, this jockeying. I mean, even you could put in, throw in IRS there when it comes to how do we tax crypto. Uh, the, the real issue, and this is the one piece of value that was in that Biden executive order, was pointing out and acknowledging that the various regulatory bodies and agencies don't agree on this stuff. And they're not on the same page and they're not aligned. Yeah, so there is a book, you know, Professor Viral Acharya of NYU wrote a book, uh, Right When Dodd-Frank was... Uh, you know, ratified by the Congress. Uh, he said that this regulatory architecture of having one agency for everything and, you know, lots of different federal agencies is going to cause problems. And there are two sorts of problems. One is they're going to jockey for, you know, jurisdiction. And the second one is that things will fall through the cracks. So if you look at India and the UK, right, we don't have a separate commodities regulator and a securities regulator because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, right? If, it, if something is essentially missold or is being is hurting the consumers, then it doesn't matter what you call it. So I, I think, so we have conduct regulators, right? So India merged the SEC and the CFTC and a lot of problems went away. UK, again, we have a conduct regulator, the FCA, and we have a prudential regulator, you know, the, the PRA, which worries about, you know, the stability of banks. So, so that's sort of a clean uh, regulatory architecture kind of prevents all of these problems, but that's not how we, are, we have it in the United States, right? It's uh, lots of federal regulators, lots of state regulators. You can't win. 
I mean, if if you're a, if you're an honest entrepreneur trying to run a decent financial business, like a lot of crypto people have been, it's really hard. I mean, if, if you're offshore and you're doing you know strange things, it's much easier than if you're trying to comply within the United States. I mean, that's just not right. Uh, you should make the, the rules should make it easier for honest, honorable, you know, business people to do business, and they should make it hard for people who are probably you know shady to to do business but it's the exact opposite in the u.s right now that's got to change yeah what does this all mean for coinbase uh, we got five minutes left so um the expectation you would think from the sec would be that coinbase delists everything except for bitcoin eth and litecoin and just becomes an exchange for three three tokens right and there's people who will say hey coinbase should just not uh, fight back they should just become compliant but there's no business there, right? So what do, what do you think? For And also, it's very important to note, there is no regulatory action against Coinbase right now, just a Wells notice. So that has not been followed through with any sort of case, just, just to be clear that people are, seem to be confusing that. But what do you think now Coinbase can do moving forward? And if they, of course, fight back, and we do see this lawsuit, I think we're talking about years of litigation. Dan, you can go ahead. Or Alex, go ahead. Well, I, just, I, I, I just think it's obvious they are going to fight back. And so there's going to be a lack of clarity yeah. for a long time. So anyone, anyone looking for like a quick resolution to this, this is going to have to wait for, for a very long time. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah. I think Paul and Brian are doing a phenomenal job. They're doing all the right things. You know, they're uh, pursuing legislative as well as court action wherever appropriate. They're you know, appealing to the, the, the strategic self-interest of the United States and the and the people. They are essentially building community. They are a good actor, right? Clearly, they've sp- spent a lot of money and effort uh, to build, you know, robust compliance and controls infrastructure for years, which is why they're able to do uh, all these fiat on-ramps and sustain them. So I, I think they deserve a lot better than they've got. And I think Paul and his team are doing a phenomenal job. And I think we should, the rest of the industry should stand behind. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, the narrative around Coinbase has been really interesting. You know, earlier we talked about the narrative around Binance. We all know that Coinbase's kind of reputation was the compliant one, the one playing nice with regulators. Um, of course, that was also Sam's reputation, Mr. Washington. But um, the irony is, I feel like for a while, DGENs kind of um, criticized Coinbase and they were like, oh, Coinbase are the suits and, you know, it's lame. Well, guess what? Now Coinbase is your hero because they're going to be the shield. And, you know, it's like the meme we all love in crypto now, the sword, the daggers falling and someone's lying in bed. Coinbase is taking on that role. I'm glad that Ajit mentioned Paul. I think Paul Grewal has been really good with kind of pushing the limit a little bit and getting much more vocal on Twitter. He has to be careful because he's the chief legal officer at a publicly traded company and there's all kinds of shit he has to align with. But I think they're they're doing a good job. They certainly can't back down. All that said, uh, when it comes to crypto, no company is too big to fail. I think that's what the Wells Notice shows us. Again, you're right, Scott, to point out it's just a warning at this point, but they're publicly traded. And yet, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, they could be fined in all manner of being. They could find to high holy hell. They could be put out of business. Anything could happen. I mean, look how people thought FTX was so big and trustworthy. Reminder, that thing only existed for three years. Um, you know, so Binance could go down. Any of yeah, these giants, we think of, it collapse in three minutes. <laughs> FTX is not a fair, I mean, FTX is not a fair comparison. That's right. That's a fraud. Right. Right. I mean, let's, right. let's just be fair to Coinbase here. Yep. And you know, Coinbase is a business that's been around a long time. With with, with FTX, yep. we always knew Sam was doing shady stuff, right? You, I mean, Alameda was dumping on retail. It's public news. There's a whole bunch of you know e- ecos- uh, redacted ecosystem coins that were being dumped on retail. 
scale. Sam was launching scam coins like many and more and whatnot. So, so I think let's, it's not a fair comparison. So it, Coinbase yep. has been uh, predominantly a very good actor over a long period of time. So, and, and it's a stable, they've gone through Sarbanes-Oxley, they've gone through a whole bunch of controls infrastructure. Now, anyways, the, the point being, uh, see, see, one of the things we need to change in this industry is, you know, if you look at... Uh, uh, some of the signal messages, the alleged signal messages. Then one of the, the, the Binance apparently compliance officer said, uh, "We close two eyes." There is a there is a funny phrase over there. So I think we need to stop closing through uh, two eyes when numbers go up, right? I think at this point, uh, crypto industry needs to sort of uh, acknowledge that we exist in a wider society, and we have to work with all of these policy organizations and uh, you know the, the wider voters and everybody else outside of crypto Twitter. And just numbers going up is not good enough, right? I think we need to sort of uh, grow up a little bit and work with the other institutions in the society and uh, take a more responsible approach. So, so there's work for us as well. Look, Kathy Wood knows it. I mean, if there's any company in crypto I, I would bet on to exist for many, many, many years to come, it's Coinbase. I mean, let me make that clear. 100%. But I just think it's, it's you 100%. know, no one is completely... <laughs> safe in this industry that's that's obvious no but they could end up building a huge moat you know when you think about coinbase if like if there is good regulation coinbase it better. could be a big winner of that so yeah it better we'll do it. Yep. the industry is not going to go grow to 42 trillion or 100 trillion like stocks and bonds without some sort of sensible rulemaking uh, we're not kind of structured to grow into the sizes we're just very happy with one trillion but i think that's just us being un, you know unfair to the potential of this industry the potential is much bigger we got it Get it, get get some things organized here. Yeah, I would only add one thing on the point about building a moat. Um, sometimes it helps just to be the last man standing. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, competitors that have fallen by the wayside for not survive. Look not at Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, be the well, honey badger. Yeah, exactly. Like Coinbase is the Lindy effect, right? It's like the longer it sticks around, the more likely it will be to stick around, just like Bitcoin. Um, and I think part of that is because of the approach that they've taken. And I think uh, if I wasn't clear, Ajit made a good point, which is that the industry should stand behind good actors who are trying to advance their, everyone's collective interests. And there we are against time. So, OK, listen, I'm going to make a promise to the audience and to the three of you. Next time I have the three of you on, we're going to have a very positive conversation about all the amazing things that are being built and all the reasons that we're all still here Every once in a while, I find myself in one of these conversations and I've made sort of a pledge to be more positive and it, and it comes out as a very negative. And I think that it's very clear that literally all four of the people here are betting their entire lives on the success of crypto and are all in to some degree on the industry. So I think yeah, I can only are. speak for myself and Alex, like you're my favorite person literally talk about all the things that are being built in the incredible adoption. So, you know, sometimes it's just, I think because of that, I find it a little frustrating and we end up down these rabbit holes, but it's also impossible not to talk about all the uh, all of the actual things that are happening right now and negativity. But I do want all of your takes on all the amazing things being built in the future of crypto and, and all that. So we're going to we're going to do it again. I want to thank all of you guys. Um, Dan, Alex, Ajit, he's Yoda. He's really Yoda. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you guys for, for, for sharing the time. And uh, and like I said, next time, uh, it'll be a, a big smiley face uh, conversation of, of uh, unicorns, puppies, and ice cream. Um, and everyone, I will be back tomorrow, of course, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tomorrow, we do the uh, weekly uh, news review. And so basically, I'm just going to be punching myself repeatedly in the face for 45 minutes doing this again, probably. Um, but it'll be fun. And also, I'm going to be on Yahoo Finance uh, in about an hour at 1130. 
And every I'm literally shocked that they've invited me back again because every time I go on there, I just have some horrible takes uh, about uh, traditional finance and everything they ask me. So should be fun. I'll see you guys all there. Thank you guys once again. Really awesome to have the three of you. Yeah, you thank guys. You. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Yeah.